got your Bibles, turn with me back to Nehemiah chapter 9 this time. Nehemiah chapter 9, appreciate you doing exactly what they did in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the book of the law was opened. They stood in the honor of the reading of God's word. And again, I will not ask you to stand for six hours like they did, but our first words have to do with stand up and bless the Lord. So if you're in Nehemiah chapter 9, let's begin with verse 5, and we'll see the second part, what the Levites were saying here in this great hymn of praise. It says, stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Praise your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them. And the heavenly host worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight. And you made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Father, as we come to your presence, Lord, we come perhaps this morning with so many questions, so many concerns. Lord, I know that there are several families even here this morning going through difficult seasons of grief and struggle. And Lord, I pray that your word and the Spirit of God would bring courage and strength and comfort and grace on this Lord's day. And Lord, I pray as your people that we would be sensitive to what you're saying to us in your word and that we would overflow in our response with worship and adoration and fresh commitments to our living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I had the opportunity years ago to go to the Alford Institute for Expository Preaching, the, the Stephen Alford Conference Center there. It happened to be the year uh, before Stephen Alford passed away. And some of you might remember Dr. Alford. The local radio station in Tacoa used to play his sermons every Sunday morning when we were getting ready for church as a kid. Does anybody remember Dr. Alford? Just raise your hand, Stephen Alford. All right. I used to love to hear that British accent, great prince of preachers, dear friend of Billy Graham's. He's with the Lord now. But somebody had donated this beautiful conference center there in Memphis, Tennessee to the Alfords for the Alford Institute. I mean, donated it. I remember speaking with his son, David Offered uh, at one of the meals, and I said, man, this is awesome. And he said, well, it's awesome, all right, that it was given to us, and it's beautiful, and it's large. He said, but boy, it takes a lot to maintain it. It's one thing to have it, but it's another thing to keep this place clean and operating and running and cover expenses. And so even though we didn't have to raise the money to build it, boy, it costs a lot to maintain it. And I thought about our salvation. I thought what it means for us to be as Christians, how salvation is free. But then it costs us everything to be a disciple. We give ourselves completely, daily, taking up our cross to follow Jesus Christ. You know, we, we've seen some wonderful facilities being built here in Jerusalem. And the, 
the, the temple was built, the law was put back in place, the accommodations for worship, and then the gates of the city to protect the religious freedom that they were experiencing there. All of these wonderful things, but let's not forget, the point of facilities is to facilitate. They're not an end in and of themselves. The temple was never built to be bowed down and worshipped. It was placed there to accommodate something. You know, they're, they're about finished, I guess, with a pretty remarkable facility in Atlanta. Are they not? The Mercedes-Benz Stadium, I guess, is about to open up. And most of us, if we were asked, would we rather go watch a football game in this new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, $1.7 billion stadium, (laughs) would we rather go watch a football game there, or would we rather see the Falcons play in the old Fulton County Stadium? Remember that? I've, I've been there before. It's not there anymore, but... Fulton County Stadium, right? Would we rather see them play there and actually win, make it to the Super Bowl, and this time actually win the Super Bowl? I would take, listen, I've been a Falcon fan a long time, so you have to sympathize with me a little bit here, but I would take Fulton County Stadium and a Super Bowl championship any day over the new $1.7 billion stadium. And listen, when when we start talking about things like church buildings and structures and and curriculums and plans and strategies and all of that, those things facilitate. But I had rather all of us this morning be gathered like they are in some places in Haiti with bamboo poles and thatch roofs and know that the people of God are walking in victory. To know that they're getting victory over sin the flesh, the devil in their life, they're making a difference in their world than to have the greatest accommodations that money could ever buy. People are really the work in process. It is people that are being built here ultimately. People are what matters most to God. The Bible is a record of God's redemptive history of his people. We're going to see that expressed in praise in just a moment. Chapter 8 concludes with the leaders of all the people getting together saying, you know what, we've got nice facilities now, but we're going to go back and we're going to put these little shacks together. We're going to put these tabernacles together, and we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles to be reminded what it was like when our people of God did not have facilities, and they were wandering through the wilderness, and they had to experience God's provision with the manna, and they had to experience God's provision of bringing water from a rock. We're going to go back, and we're going to, for Uh, The next eight days, we're going to celebrate that Feast of Tabernacles. And so the leaders begin to lead and teach people what it meant to really journey with God during that time. And then in chapter 9 and verse 1, we see now it's the 24th day of the month. And see, that Feast of Tabernacles was the would, would have been like days 14 through 22 of that seventh month of the year, really close to the time of the year that we're in now, beginning of the fall season. There would be a great celebration on the 23rd, and and then on the 24th, and by the way, the 23rd is probably that day that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, when the torches that lit the night sky were extinguished, and the party was over, and everybody that came into Jerusalem were having a great time when that party was over. Many, many years later after this, when Christ was on this earth, it was at that moment he said, I am the light of the world, he who believes in me will never walk in darkness. In other words, Jesus was saying, when you walk with me, the party never ends. 
It just never gets old. The fire never goes out. And then in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8, Jesus would say, listen, if you become my disciple, you begin to walk with me, you're going to know the truth. And that truth is going to do something, right? And John 8, 32 says that truth will set you free. It's going to do something in your life. That's the context Jesus spoke into. Ezra and Nehemiah helped establish that context. And the leaders here in Jerusalem, by putting these things back in place, saying basically there's some unfinished business here. And in your life today, and certainly I know, because I know my heart, in my life, there's some unfinished business. We learned to sing it as a kid, right? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still, <laughs> he's still working on me. We are being built up. We're the ones that God's doing a work on. We're the unfinished business and we cooperate with him in that process we are saved by grace through faith ephesians 2 8 and 9 that not of ourselves gift of god not by works or we would brag about who's doing good enough to be saved we're saved by grace but verse 10 of ephesians 2 says we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works we begin to cooperate with him in that process and so Paul told the church at Philippi, he told those believers there, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I've said before, I used to think that working out your own salvation meant that you, like a math problem, you try to figure out whether or not you're saved. And that's not what he's talking about. He says, because you're saved, because you have believed in Jesus Christ, now it's mining language, like going into a mine and discovering precious, valuable nuggets Dig down deep and begin to work out what God is already doing inside of you. Let it be fleshed out in your life. Paul would also tell the church at Philippi, he says, not that I have attained, I haven't arrived myself, but I'm pressing on toward the mark, toward that high call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we cooperate with him in that process. It takes a lot of divine encounters in that process where we have been in the presence and under the power of God. When that happens, sometimes it happens when we're together as the body of Christ. In Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because we need each other for those divine encounters. It also should happen when we're alone and in our personal life, like that Psalm 1, man of God who uh, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he's meditating day and night. So in your personal quiet time and in your corporate worship, we need those divine encounters that bring about this greater restoration. And by greater restoration, I'm talking about not facilities, not structures, not ministry paradigms, but the people of God that God loves, cares about, gave his son for, and is doing a building work in your life. This divine encounter, this greater restoration is what we see taking place here in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. And so to follow up on what we saw in chapter 8, look at how they began to respond as we read just a moment with praise. So I want you to see that this morning, and in a moment you're going to have a chance to apply this very practically. 
But, but I want you to see first there was an adoration of the faithfulness of God, to adore, to worship, to fall before Christ in the very presence of Almighty God. This adoration of the faithfulness of God. Is your life a life of praise and adoration to the God who gave Himself for you? Look, they acknowledged Him first of all. They adore Him because He is the Creator God. There is no one like Him. No one else spoke this world into existence and so, as the Levites begin to lead, as the leaders of the people speak up, they say, stand up and bless the Lord your God. From everlasting to everlasting, we serve an eternal God. And he says, we praise your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. God, you're even bigger than the praises we can lift this morning. You alone are the Lord. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their hosts, everything in both the heavens was used in a couple of ways. The, 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 the tabernacle of God, the, the place of God's dwelling was heaven. And then there was a word for heavens that described the, the sun and the moon and the stars, the heavenly, so to speak. And he said, in all of this, everything that is beyond our reach is praising God because that's what he created it for, was to give him glory and to give him praise. And so he says, his name's being exalted and he's the one who created the heavens for that purpose. And then he says, and the earth and all that is in it, all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts worship you. They stand in awe of God's creation. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we see the same thing. You are worthy to receive glory because you have created all things, all things were created by you and for you. In Colossians chapter 1, that is a description given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody who would ever argue, we spoke of this in our life group this morning, anyone who would ever argue the deity of Christ needs to read Colossians chapter 1. Anyone who would try to say that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but was God the Son, if they would reject that notion, they need to read Colossians 1 because it says there concerning Jesus all things were made by him and for him. Apart from him, nothing was made. John 1 says the same thing. All things made by him and for his glory, for his pleasure. Bringing God the Son, involved with God the Father, even as the Holy Spirit hovered over the faces of the deep, bringing about everything that is created. So Jesus couldn't have created himself because everything that was created was created by him. He is eternal with God the Father and worthy of our worship. He is a sovereign God, and we're told because of that is to be preeminent our first place in the church. In Psalm 24, a familiar passage to many of you, says, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. The earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants, belong to the Lord, for He laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. And when Job was going through one of the darkest hours of his life and he's questioning God, saying, God, why is this happening? I don't understand this. God uses the fact that he is the one who created all of this and put it all into place to answer Job. And he says, were you there when I created this world? Were you there when I put it into motion? Job, there are some things you're not going to understand because Job, you're not God. You're not the creator God. So in our worship, we come before him this morning and we say, God, you are the creator of this world. All things created by you and for you. Not only is he a creator God, I am so glad that it didn't stop there, but he's also a covenant God. 
says that not only did he create all things, verse 7, you are the Lord who chose Abram, brought him out, Ur of the Chaldeans, changed his name to Abraham, his covenant name. You, you found his heart faithful in your sight, and you made a covenant with him. You gave him the land of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You, you gave him a place to dwell. God is a faithful God who is a covenant God. And he chose Abraham to be a, a blessing and to be a light to all nations. Ultimately, through his seed, Messiah would come. Jesus would come into this world and establish a new covenant. He would stand there at that first Lord's Supper, that Passover meal that he would redefine and he would say, this is my body and this is my blood. This is a new covenant in my blood. Reminding us we have a faithful God who has made a way for us through Jesus Christ, his son. Out of this covenant, he is also a compassionate God. You continue to read this passage, verse 9. It says, you saw the oppression of your ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. When you get to that place in life where you feel there's no way out, we have a God who is not only your creator, but if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you know him as your covenant God, the one who died for you and rose again and gave you life, he is also the God who's going to be compassionate and find a way out of any and every situation. You perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials. It goes on to say later in verse 10, you made a name for yourself. All this was for God's glory. Your name endures to this day. You divided the sea before them and they crossed through it on dry ground and you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone, into the churning waters. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. When you don't know where to go, you trust in Jesus. You walk according to his word, which is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. He makes a way for us because he is a compassionate God. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. And you gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions. You gave them good decrees. You gave them commandments to live by, to protect them and to provide your very best for them. Why? Because he is a compassionate God. He is summarizing and begins through the rest of this chapter to kind of summarize how God had always been faithful in the Old Testament. The word testament means covenant. He, he, he was their creator God, but those who are saved, those who are his children know him as a covenant God, and in their lives he exercises his, his compassion in a special way. That means we experience forgiveness. Verse 17 they refused to listen. We know that they were stubborn and obstinate at times. They didn't remember your wonders that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich and faithful in love, and you did not abandon them. I am so grateful this morning at church. So grateful that at times we may feel like giving up on God that He never gives up on us. At times we might feel like letting go of God and He never lets go of us because He is a faithful, compassionate, covenant God who has embraced you and He's not letting you go. Forgiving you. We could go with so many reminders in this passage. Verse 20, you sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. Verse 21, 
you provided them for them in the wilderness for 40 years. They lacked it. Listen, we're going to go through some dry seasons of life. We're going to go through the desert in life, but God will provide for us in the midst of that. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Anybody say, well, I don't need God to intervene in my life like that. If I could just get through a day without my feet swelling. They experienced God's protection and provision. Look down at verse 23. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of heaven, and you brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go in and take possession of it. God was doing a wonderful work in their midst because he's a compassionate God. Look at verses 30 and verse 31 in this same chapter here. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, that they, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. Wait a minute, you mean God let them suffer? Yes, but always with their best interest in mind to get their attention to draw them back to himself. He says, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and what? Compassionate God. Yes, he's a creator God, and every man, woman, boy, and girl born on the face of this earth can refer to God as their creator. We can all know God as creator, but only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can know him as a covenant God and walk in the fullness of his compassion. And he's compassionately given his son for us all. I love Psalm 103. It's, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is, in, that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. What are those benefits? That he heals all your diseases. He forgives all your sins. He satisfies your life, your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. He's rich in mercy and abounding in love like we just read in this passage. And we're told throughout Scripture that while God is holy and just, He is a compassionate God. Lamentation says, listen, every morning God's mercies are new. Every morning God's mercies are new. Why is that? Because every morning we wake up with a brand new need for the mercy of God. We need his mercies. We need his grace. And he is a compassionate God. And so this great hymn of praise they break into because of this covenant faithfulness. And so they're hearing the word of God proclaimed to them. They're hearing it explained to them as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8. And they're like, wow, you know, God has been faithful to his word. And then they begin to respond. Not only is there an adoration of his covenant faithfulness, there's an acknowledgement of our own fallenness in his presence. One of the things that we learn in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory, and we said, man, wouldn't that be wonderful just to get a fresh glimpse of God? Isaiah, when he saw that, said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And when we see how holy and how wonderful and how beautiful and how awesome God is in all of his glory, we can't help but respond by saying, I'm not worthy to stand in his presence. Listen, nobody's going to go into heaven one day and say, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I got a thing or two I'm going to ask God. When I get to heaven, I'm going to tell Jesus what I really think about. First of all, if you have that attitude, you may not be headed there. Secondly, when we stand before a holy God, we're going to realize just how unworthy we are to be there. We're going to fall on our face broken before Him. 
like Isaiah, woe is me, a man of unclean lips and life. I'm not worthy. And by the grace of God, he'll stand us back up and say, my son has made you worthy. There's an acknowledgement of our fallenness in his presence. They made a confession. They made many confessions, and these confessions also led to commitments. We're in need of constant repair. Look at some of the confessions. We have to acknowledge this. In verses 16 and 17, again, your ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked. They did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders. You performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. He they begin confessing the sins of their ancestors. And I know we don't like to do that. When we have our forefathers and, and people who are our ancestors who went before us and they sinned, we want to say, hey, that was their sin. That's not my fault. But they acknowledge, like, listen, we're living under the consequences of the sins of our ancestors. And they begin to confess that. After the Exodus, in verse 26, it says, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. After all you did for them, they rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who warned them to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies, rejecting the very sovereignty of Almighty God. You say, I would never reject the fact that God is a sovereign God, but do we denounce His sovereignty in our life? Do we give him the lordship of the throne of our hearts? And when we don't make Christ Lord in our hearts, when we don't, as Peter said, sanctify Jesus as Lord in your hearts, when we don't make him number one, then that's a blasphemous action as we're rejecting his work in our lives. So they're confessing this in their confessions. And and they begin to appeal to the one that they adored. And I I say a great place to start in prayer and praise is adore God for who he is in himself. And then when you understand who you are in light of that, make your appeal based on not who you are because you don't have much to appeal to. I don't either. Make your appeal based on who he is, his character and nature. Look at verse 32. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, Do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and our leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commandments and warnings that you gave them. And when they were in their kingdom, with your abundant goodness that you gave them, and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Now this is not describing the United States of America today, but boy, it sure looks like it, doesn't it? And certainly the church, God's covenant people in America and around the world can say God has been so good to us. And even in the midst of his goodness to us and his love for us and his compassion, we still fall again and again and we're reminded we're a work in process and we're in constant need of the grace of God. So he says in verse 36, here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit 
and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings. You have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. You've been so good to us and we keep just getting ourselves in trouble. We're told, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we're told that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. There was this argument going on where Paul was trying to explain, listen, the grace of God didn't come into your life to give you a license to sin. It came to give you a liberty from the power of sin and, and religious legalism in your life, but not so that you would use that escape from legal, religious legalism that's to get back involved in sin. That's those two extremes, the, 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 the religious legalism that adds so much to Scripture that's not even there. A lot of that goes on today where people kind of make up rules to add to the Bible. If you're a Bible, you'll eat this way, dress this way, look this way, act this way, and it's just not in the Word of God. And then others say, I'm not going to give in to legalism. I don't want religious legalism. And so they use the grace of God for a license to sin, to disobey the Scriptures that we do have. And Paul said in, in Galatians 5, 1, it's for freedom that you have been set free. And in Israel, they had this newfound freedom. They had this new, the, the facilities in place to worship God. And yet they were still, even at this point, in the midst of the mighty hand, mighty work of God, they were still falling back into their old habits. And so they make some commitments in this passage. It moves from a time of confession to a time of commitment. That's where we are today. Need of commitments, fresh commitments. Look at verse 38. It says, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and the priests. Chapter 10 kind of breaks this down. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God and give uh, the law of God given through God's servant Moses. To carefully obey all the commands and ordinances, they begin to describe that in the rest of chapter 10. You see them come to a place where they say, we haven't been living like we ought to, but we're going to commit ourselves right now afresh and anew to do what we know God has called us to do as revealed in his word and how it's applied by the Holy Spirit's help in understanding his word and living it out our life. We make new commitments. And so as we prepare our hearts for a time to respond to his word this morning, I want you to reflect for a moment. I want you to ask yourself, in light of all this, in light of God's covenant faithfulness in my life, how should I adore him? How should I praise him? And as I praise him and I encounter his presence, how should I respond? So during this time of worship this morning, the altar will be open for the first song or as long as I'm needed, I'll stand here if I can pray with you about anything. But I want you to ask as you praise God, as you reflect on who he is in and of himself in all of his glory and how good and compassionate and covenant-keeping and faithful he's been to you, how should you respond? And I know we don't like the word commitment this morning. I know we don't like that word. And here's why some of us shy away from it. We say, if I make a commitment, if I make an oath to God, that could be an arrogant thing because what if I can't keep that oath? What if I can't keep that commitment? What if on my wedding day, 
I had told Tina as we stood before a church, well, listen, I love you and I want to marry you, but it'd be kind of arrogant to say, I'm going to be faithful till death do us part. It'd be kind of arrogant to say, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health. I mean, I love you, but I don't want to make like a commitment. And she would have said, see you later. Listen, I know it takes the grace of God and the power of God to keep those commitments, but God calls us to be of people who take up our cross daily and follow him and make a commitment and have the courage to say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. And it's only by your grace and your strength that I'll keep it that I'm giving it to you. Would you stand this morning? Father, may the Spirit of God instruct us on how we should respond. Respond in adoration to worship a God who is the Creator God. Respond by entering into that covenant relationship. Lord, if there's a man, woman, boy, or girl who's never given their heart, their life to Jesus this morning, I pray that right now they would turn from sin and self and that they would place their faith and their trust in Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again from the grave. Lord, I pray that if you call us and convict us to make fresh commitments to you, that we will make our confessions before you. Thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess those sins. Lord, if that commitment is to righteous living, if that commitment is to be the witness to our neighbors that you've called us to be, if that commitment is to embrace an area of ministry you're calling us to, whatever that commitment, help us to solidify those things at this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.